Well, for those of you who don't know, I am uh, Mike Sayers, and I will be your sermonator for the evening. We uh, have been going through the first letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians around Asia Minor, and um, one of the things we're doing differently is that instead of having a story night somewhere in between where we have four people or so get up and tell their spiritual journeys, uh, we're doing kind of one a week for a while. I'm not sure how long that's going to last, but it is uh, for now. Uh, last week, Joshua Dillon Peoples uh, was in town and shared his uh, story, and uh, this week we have a person who not only was one of the founders of Scum of the Earth Church, but also founded the Morning Church about seven years ago as well. And if you know her, you'll know her as the founding worship leader of Scum of the Earth Church, your friend and mine, the lovely Deva Yoder. Hi, everybody. I'm going to pray. Lord, we give you the glory. We thank you for this time together in unity, brothers and sisters in Christ gathered together. Lord, please use me. Please speak through me. This is a story about what you've done through me and with me. This is your story. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, yeah, I've been around a long time. Um, I'm very, very proud of this church. I feel like it's one of my life legacies, and I feel honored to have had had my hand in it. So, um, so I've been a Christian 18 years. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Um, not, not, a, not at all. Uh, but I would say I was raised in what I'd call a seeking home where um, my parents were very much seekers and they tried very hard to find the truth, even though it was kind of a misguided truth. Um, and we would read the Bible and kind of see how it would pertain to to enlightenment and um, kind of earning your way to heaven, nirvana, um, which is not a bad thought, but it was kind of without grace. So that's really what my family needed. That's what we all need. But um, So my dad, even though now he's a, a completely different person, he's been transformed by Jesus so much. So I don't really want to get into to the way he was too much um, during my upbringing, but I'll just say that he was very much given to the hardness of his heart and his desires during that time. And it was very difficult to live with him. And my mom, who a lot of you knew, she passed away last November. She was an amazing woman, but um, during my growing up, she had given her life to Christ by listening to a, a Dobson radio program. And so she really didn't have any community or or guidance during that time. So she was kind of doing the best she could, but um, it she was lacking in a lot of things too. So, 
So, um, very turbulent childhood. And then, so in middle school, I became friends with this girl named Patience who was in and out of a lot of foster homes and had a really hard time, way harder than me. And she became a racist skinhead. And um, when I would hang out with her, she would try to get me to experiment with a lot of drugs and alcohol, which I did. And then we'd be around a much older crowd that was very hateful and full of rage and violent. And um, I witnessed some pretty violent things with them as far as um, fights and kicking babies and, and just the attitude also. Like they were just a very, very hard group of people to be around. So um, I was in that lifestyle for, for a few years and it was just a very young age to be so desensitized to life and, and, um, so about 16, I started dating a guy who was straight edge and, um, kind of inspired me to stop doing drugs and drinking and, and that was all fine and good, but I was still very much lost and, and, um, being in his house with 13 other roommates, it was kind of crazy party central all the time. And if you were a girl and you wanted to hang out there, you kind of really, like, either were, like, a slut or um, one of the dudes. So it was safer for me to just become kind of one of the dudes and wear baggy clothes and, you know, just, like, be crass and vulgar and um, hide my femininity, just completely hide it all together. Because that was, that was something to be preyed upon in that time. So um, I was very uncomfortable in my skin at that time, but it was kind of a, a way to survive, really. So around that time, I think we were at a diner or something, and I saw this punk rock kid walk in, this guy I knew. And he had this shirt on, and it was a Christian shirt. I've seen other Christians wear it since then, but it's this black shirt, and it had a drawing of... Jesus on it in his face with the crown of thorns and the blood running down and it said his pain your gain and his eyes were kind of squeezed in agony like he was suffering and the guy was wearing it obviously in, in mockery and someone commented on it and he's like yeah ah, yeah he looks like he's taking a shit you know just in total mockery and I, and I just was kind of taken aback and I was like whoa, dude, for one, that's really disrespectful. Like a lot of people believe in that, but, and then I had this thought like, what if that's for real? You don't know. Like if that's for real, you might be in trouble. <laughs> like you might have to answer for that. It's the first time that ever kind of crossed my mind. So about a year later, I was 17 um, and I was invited to go to Cornerstone Music Festival in Illinois. And that's where I met my husband. Um, had no idea it was my husband. And I didn't know for about six more years, but um, that story aside, God had been wooing me up to this point. He had, um, I had encountered a lot of 
people, a lot of friends who had been telling me how their lives had been changed by Jesus. And I just kind of looked at them like, I don't understand. God spoke to you and what has he done for you? I don't get it. I just, I did not get it. I had no idea what it meant. Um, no one could really explain it to me. I don't know if my heart was just too hard at the time, even though I was, I was really wanting to know. I just couldn't understand it until I got to Cornerstone and I just felt like God was all around me and in all these people around me. And I felt like I was in heaven itself. And the best way I can describe it is like kind of being under the, the weight of like tons and tons of water and like just kind of carrying it. And the best thing to do would just be to kind of let it go and just go into it and just be free in it. But I didn't know how to do that. But that was the pressure of God that was on me at that time. And I was standing at um, this concert. This is another thing. I had no idea Christian music like this existed, like hardcore music. I didn't even know Amy Grant was a Christian, honestly. I had no idea. Um, so I'm watching this hardcore band, and I'm watching this guy just scream his heart out for Jesus. And I'm, like, so intrigued by this. And this guy turns around in front of me and it was one of my boyfriend's 13 roommates. And he just looks at me and he's like, Oh my gosh. And he hugs me and he's like, this is an answer to prayer. I've been praying that I've been, that I could see someone from Fort Wayne. I'm like, I'm a, I'm an answer to prayer. It's weird. And he's like, yeah, I'm a youth pastor now. I'm like, what's a youth pastor? <laughs> That's crazy. And he's like, no, I'll tell you. It started raining. So he sat in the car and he started telling me like how God had just completely changed his heart, changed his life. And he just seemed so at peace and so different. And I'm looking at him like, yeah, you don't seem like the same person at, at all. He's like, I'm not. And I'm like, that that's weird. And I'm like, well, what about like you said, you told me you were in the army and you like shot a kid overseas. And he's like, I lied. I was like, really? Like, you can just say that. Like, you don't make any excuses. You just, you know, tell me like you lied and it was so easy for you. And like, he just was so free and in the new person that he was. And so the next morning I was laying in the tent and I was I just was praying in my heart and I'm like, God, if this is real, if you're real, I really want to know. Like, I want to have you like these people say they have you and I want to know, I want to, I want this too. And then I looked on the side of the tent as the sun was coming up through the branches outside and I could kind of see this picture forming in the shadows. And it was the same picture I had seen on that mocking punk rocker's shirt of Jesus in agony and being mocked and suffering. And I suddenly had a full and complete understanding that he was real and what he did and why he did it and that he did it for me. 
And I was so happy that I could be free too. So I ran out of the tent. I was kind of going crazy. And I was like, ah, and no one's awake yet. And I was like running down this dirt road. I'm like, this is awesome. And if I could pinpoint a, more, a moment where I feel like I was born again, that would be it. Because I really felt completely new and I felt physically lighter and I felt like I could see colors differently. And, and so I went in the shower and it was ice cold. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> but I had such a gratefulness for what I had and for being alive. And it was so deep and so emotional that I feel like I couldn't even say the name of Jesus. I just, I couldn't even speak his name because I was so reverent. So I went in the prayer tent and I'll, I'll never forget this nice man who prayed for me. And he prayed that when I went back to Indiana, I would be different, that I would be a different person. And I would never be the same. And he was so right. So about a year later, I went back to Cornerstone, and that's where I met Reese and Leonore. And um, they, I told them I was, my family was moving to Colorado, and they invited me to their Bible study, which I attended off and on for several years until it eventually blossomed into this beautiful thing. Um, and a couple of years into the church, um, my husband and I decided we needed to move back to Ohio so we could be near his family. So, so we did, and that's where we had our son. I didn't really realize until after he was born how truly isolated I was in that space. We thought we had bought a house in a decent neighborhood, um, but we ended up going to bed terrified every night at the gunshots we would hear and see being fired outside of our front door and the knife fights and the screaming and how the police would never come, even if they called, even if we called. And they were just at the end of the block. So I was very isolated in that. Um, and I, I became depressed with postpartum depression and we got to the point where Brian was even afraid to walk from the garage to the house after work. And we just looked at each other like, what did we do? This was a huge mistake. And we both got so low and it's like we couldn't pull the other one out. And we became very desperate. I became very desperate during this time. Uh, the depth of my pain was so great that all I could think about at that time was how to get out. How do I get out of this? And if getting out of my pain meant leaving my husband and my son, so be it. I had to get out. So around that time, I was seriously thinking about leaving. Mike called me, and he told me to sit down. And he told me that one of my best friends who had helped start SCUM had had an affair and left her husband and no one knew. And 
it devastated me. And I don't, I don't think I got out of bed for a couple of days. But I, under, I understood instantly why she did it. Because the depth of my pain, I, I was sure, was similar to the depth of hers. Not the same, but similar. And I knew that if I took a similar way out of my pain the way she did, I would end up murdering my own heart and devastating those around me. So since leaving wasn't an option, I tried to figure out who I was in this place. This is a new place. Who am I? And the idea of being a a Midwestern housewife was something I absolutely loathed. So I tried to figure out, give myself other labels, like, okay, well, I'm a mom and I'm a wife and, you know, what else? I don't know. And I wrote in my journal, I'm strong in the knowledge of who I am. And I just looked at that and I was like, that's a lie. I don't know who I am. So I made three very conscious choices in this time that changed everything. I heard the verse, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I didn't know, I didn't know how that applied to me because I didn't have the desires of my heart. So I knew I had to delight myself in the Lord, but I didn't know how. And then I, I saw this little boy on TV who was terminally ill and he said something very profound. He said, you have to remember to play after every storm. And that just rung, resonated inside of me. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to just kind of try to live as if the storm is already over. And I'm going to try to play. And the best way I knew how to do that was to worship. So every day I decided I'm not going to get out of this chair until I understand this Bible verse I'm reading, even if it's just one verse, I really want to internalize it. Second was I decided to worship. And that meant trying to put on music every day, or I would close the blinds and I would cry and get on my knees, or I would spin around and dance or sing or whatever, what, whatever felt real I needed to do. And that took some practice, but I did it. And the third thing was to be very intentionally grateful and look for five new things every day and write them down about what I need to be grateful for to completely just shift my mindset and think about positive instead of dwelling on the negative. And so then during this time, very slowly, and I mean very slowly, God started to remove the layers in front of my eyes. It was like he was lifting one veil at a time of many. And he revealed something to me that was so profound and changed my life so drastically, the way I view my life, the way I live my life. And I, I would do it all again to learn the same lesson. And the lesson is... 
I don't know who I am. I will never be who I think I am. Every, everything I had my identity in was never who I was. Everything I do is just what I do. I have no identity in what I do. I have no identity in what I sing or say or wear or cook or the people I choose to surround myself with or the babies I have. All those things are just things I do. But none of them are me. In fact, I think the idea of who we are is one of the biggest deceptions. Because now I know, through this experience, I know whose I am. I know I will always be his. It doesn't matter how much of the things are stripped away from me now. And at some point, everything will be stripped away. And someday I will be lying in a hospice bed and I will have everything stripped away, just like my mom, just like I watched. And everything will be completely gone. And all that will be left is the knowledge that I belong to Jesus and that is it. That's all I ever need to know. So really, this is a story about how God saved me twice. And the first time he came to me, he came to me at Cornerstone. But the second time, I had to go to him. And it took work, but it was worth it. So that's all. Thank you. You know, I didn't think that would affect me as much as it did this morning. And I was wrong. I am not going to try and uh, <clears throat> make the connections obvious between the scripture for today and David's story. I think you'll be able to do that on your own. If I think of something, I'll throw it in. But the primary illustration for what I want to talk about tonight, you've already heard. So let's go straight to the first chapter of First Peter. We're going to start in verse 6. It'll be on the screen to my right. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Now, Peter begins with the words, in all this, you greatly rejoice. So what is he referring to? What is the this he's talking about? It's what we talked about last week, if you were here, when Joshua and when people shared, when I spoke on verses 3 through 5. And uh, I'll put those points up here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So he says at the beginning of verse 6, In all this you greatly rejoice. And we talked about that. That's an awesome list. And we rejoice in it. Davis still rejoices in it 18 years later. But to go back to our passage for today, there's something else that happens. He says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, in addition to that, he says that uh, you've got to suffer this grief even though you have never seen him. So we are rejoicing through the trials that come our way and the fact that we don't see Jesus like Peter saw Jesus. Now, here's something interesting. Let's go back to the whole verse. He says in the first part, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You may have had to suffer. You may have had to suffer. The, the literal translation of that, if you looked at the Greek, he uses the word, if necessary. That you suffer grief if necessary. If necessary. You may have had to. I mean, what kind of necessity are we talking about here? Who or, or what is making this kind of sorrow and this kind of grief necessary? Well, the answer is God. Peter makes it plain that Christian suffering only happens if God allows it to happen, if God wills it. For example, in the next chapter, or in three, chapter 3 of the same letter, Peter says, It is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing right, rather than for, what, for doing what is wrong. So you might suffer 
for doing what's right, and you might not. The ultimate choice about whether you suffer or not is God's. And then in chapter 4, Peter says this, Let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In other words, what Peter is talking about is that God is sovereign. He's over everything. He is the big guy in the sky. He is the boss of the universe. He is the one and only king. And nothing happens outside the umbrella of his will. And so when he says you may have had to suffer, when he says if necessary, he means if God decides that you may have had to suffer or if God decides that it's necessary. Why? Why? So that what? So that, beginning at verse 7. So that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So that you can be real in your faith. Why does God allow these sufferings and griefs to come our way, these trials? It's because he wants to burn out of you every last ounce of pretense about your faith. He wants you to be genuine. He wants it to be real. He wants it to be like gold, refined, except eternal. Unlike gold, I used to work in a steel mill. I know what this looks like when you're trying to refine metal. In the case of a goldsmith, he's got a little mini version of the steel mill, and he's using he's gold ore, not iron ore. But what he'll do is a goldsmith will, will get a crucible, which is a kind of a really specialized ceramic furnace, and he'll put gold ore in it, and then he'll turn up the heat until the gold ore totally melts. And then what happens is all the impurities that are in that gold ore rise to the surface of the crucible, and then there's a tap on the bottom of the crucible. And that's where he opens up the flow of the pure gold to come out, and then he lets it cool in the various shapes for use in jewelry or electronics or whatever. That's the idea behind being refined for gold. 
And what Peter is telling us, the same process kind of works for your faith, which God thinks is much, much more valuable than gold. So you want to know why David came to Jesus twice? It's because she went through the crucible of having her faith tested. And the truth of the matter is, it may not be the last time. God is faithful to keep refining us and refining us and refining us. This is why true Jesus-following Christian old dudes and old women are the coolest people on the planet. Because they have been refined over and over and over again. If you've ever desired that, just keep following Jesus. Now, I know that this raises a really troubling question. I mean, we're not playing games tonight. This is the hard stuff. This is real Christianity. I mean, we're talking about your life, right? We're talking about my life. We're talking about what happens to you on a daily basis. The things that really annoy you. The things that make you shake your fist at heaven. That's what we're talking about. I mean, does God will that someone's marriage breaks up? Did God will for David's mom to die of cancer? For my mom to die of a burst aneurysm? Does God's will include all your sexual perversion that's in your mind or that's been done to you? Is God's will for the rebellion of your children, if you have any, against your wise and godly counsel? Does God will the loss of your job when you got fired or laid off? Does God will the chaos in Syria or the Christians being slaughtered in Egypt? I think the answer is going to surprise you. The answer is no. God does not will it. And yes, he does. No in the sense that God does not delight in suffering for suffering's sake. He does not command people to sin against you? Nor does he approve of you hurting others through your own fallen nature. He doesn't approve of the way that humans have treated the earth. Trust me on this one, God does not approve of the way we've handled the environment. 
It was really, really good when he made it. Not quite as good now. He could prevent any of those things from happening. And there's the rub. He could have prevented it. But because of some great eternal plan, you can read Ephesians chapter 3 to get a glimpse of maybe what part of that is. He's got higher designs than the destructiveness of sin or the deceitfulness of Satan or the painfulness of your suffering. God does not approve of sinning, but he can and does allow the sinful acts of people. When Christ was murdered on the cross, it was a sin against a man in whom was found no fault. But God willed for it to happen. Jesus even asked over and over again, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from my lips, but not my will be done, your will be done. Isaiah 53.10 says, And it was the will of the Lord to bruise him, and by that we are saved. Matter of fact, God allows every negative thing to be used in our lives to bring us closer to the image of Jesus, to make us more pure and holy. I've said this before. I'm going to keep saying it until we all recite it. There are some virtues that only happen in the face of evil. There is no such thing as forgiveness. You want to be a forgiving person? Then people are going to offend you. They're going to do things to you that need forgiving. Those are not always good things. In fact, they're never good things. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to forgive them, right? You want to become a merciful person? You want to be more like Jesus? then God will put you in positions where you have the choice to take justice or to do mercy. Which are you going to choose? There will be an injustice that comes your way. And you'll want to right that injustice. But this is the only way that mercy happens. Courage, bravery, those kind of virtues only happen when something terrible is going on. You don't need bravery in good situations. And on and on and on. And so it's not double talk when Peter says that uh, in this we're rejoicing even now, though for a little while in this life, 
were grieved. See? Right up there. Even though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, you have great joy. You greatly rejoice. So we're living in this tension of suffering and joy. The Apostle Paul knows the same thing. He says so in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are poor, yet making many rich. We have nothing, and yet possess everything. He is living in the tension. And that's where we will stay until we go home to be with Jesus. And that is a tension I am looking forward to releasing. Really, I am. The older I get, the more attractive the releasing of that tension becomes. So there is something in the middle of our pain and our suffering that God can only accomplish through our pain and our suffering. He is refining this beautiful thing that he's placed in us called faith. Malcolm Muggeridge, who has been called the most eloquent English-speaking lay apostle of Christianity, you know, some would dispute that. Some would say it's Tolkien or Lewis or all sorts of other people. But Malcolm said this, and it's awesome. It's on my Facebook page right now. He said, indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness. It's through affliction and suffering that the greatest lessons in life are learned. And this has been echoed by some of the great preachers down through the years. Samuel Rutherford said, when he found himself in the cellars of affliction, he said, quote, the great king keeps his wine there. And the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Ronald Dunn, a Bible teacher who experienced much personal tragedy, said this, I'm often mystified. I don't understand why it is that as I endeavor to live for God and pray and believe, everything seems to be falling apart. Sometimes I struggle and I say, Dear Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? But then he concludes, it is good for us to remember that God is not an arsonist, but he's a refiner. God is not an arsonist. He doesn't just burn down your life willy-nilly for the sheer pleasure of watching it burn down. But he brings heat into your life to purify the beautiful stuff that's already there. Back uh, during 
the reign of uh, Nicolae Cochescu in Romania, there was persecution of Christians going on. Joseph Tsan, a Romanian pastor, had this to say, and this, this really just blows my mind, okay? This kind of spirituality is desirable, but I'm afraid the price to get this kind of spiritual wisdom is a lot of affliction. He said, the union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I'm not a lone fighter here. I am an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It is not my suffering. I only had the honor to share in Christ's sufferings. Johnny Erickson Tata, a woman who has been confined to a wheelchair for the vast part of her adult life after a dive in a shallow lake left her a paraplegic while she was still in high school, had this to say. Every sorrow we taste will one day prove to be the best possible thing that could have happened. We will thank God endlessly in heaven for the trials he sent us here. This is not Disneyland. This is truth. Lord, give us faith like that. Let's handle the rest of the passage for today. There's three things, basically, that Peter is calling us to do. There's three things that he's saying the Christian life is all about, and that is loving Christ, trusting Christ, and enjoying Christ. Loving Christ, trusting Christ, and enjoying Christ. When you love Jesus, you see him as the most amazing, most stupendous, most lovely, most precious relationship in the universe. That's what it means to be in love with Jesus. Because of his wonderful goodness and his virtue. You can't, in some ways, take your spiritual eyes off of him. He ravishes your soul with goodness. I remember when I became a Christian, I thought that I was thinking about Jesus all the time. And I was willfully trying not to think about Jesus before I became a Christian. Jesus was troublesome, especially when I wanted to sin. The Christian life is about loving Jesus. It's no simpler than that. I don't care if your theology is all screwed up. If you love Jesus, you're my sister. You're my brother. We can disagree about all sorts of doctrines. And trust me, there are people in this city with whom I disagree theologically on some very major issues, but the fact that they love Jesus 
makes them my sister, it makes them my brother, and I will go to my death protecting them. It's amazing the bond you can have when you come at each other with all these kind of weird distrusts because you're on opposite sides of so many issues and then you find, oh, she really does love Jesus. This is not just a play game for her. She's not a pastor because she had nothing better to do. Jesus really transformed her life and he is in a love relationship with her and it's great. She's my sister. The second thing is trusting Christ. Now, trusting Christ means to find Jesus reliable. I mean, to give, it, give you a very, very simple example, I mean, right now you are trusting the chair you're sitting in to hold you up. I mean, you sat down in that chair without a thought that it might fall down and that you would wind up on the floor. Trusting Jesus, having faith in Jesus, is somewhat similar to that. We see him as reliable in all of his counsel. We see him as trustworthy in all of his promises. We believe that he's going to come through for us. David had to make that decision to place her trust in Jesus while she was in Canton, Ohio, with gunshots ringing out in the street. The third thing might throw you, it's the enjoying Christ. In verse 8, he says, we are filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy. I mean, seriously, sometimes it makes you want to run down the street like a crazy person, going, God loves me. I love everything and everybody. Joy in Jesus is the deep, good feeling of loving him and being loved by him. It's no different, really, than being in love with somebody here and enjoying them. Is no different than just having a friend that you deeply enjoy. You like being around them. You want to go places. You want to do things. Why do you think people were accusing Jesus of being a drunkard and a glutton? It's because people kept inviting him out to eat and drink. They wanted to be around him all the time. He was fun to be around. That's the thing about the new Pope I think everybody really appreciates, isn't it? He seems like somebody you'd want to spend time with. Well, take the Pope and multiply him by a million, and you're close to Jesus. And here's the thing is, whatever you enjoy, you become. I mean, what gives joy its... It's quality. Isn't the thing enjoyed what gives it 
your joy a certain quality? Because not all joy is beautiful. Some joy is ugly. There's some people who enjoy hurting people. Plug for the uh, Surfing for God group. I remember back when I was addicted to porn. I didn't visit these, but their whole websites devoted to sadomasochism and bondage, hurting people in a sexual context gave them joy. That is dirty joy, polluted joy, evil joy. You see, the object, the thing that you strive to enjoy gives the joy a quality. Some people enjoy material things, stuff. And if you're with them, they'll tell you about their new car. They'll tell you about how they redid their house. They'll tell you about how they had the landscaping done in the backyard. They'll tell you about the clothes they got, the vacations they took. And you know what? After a while, you're going, God, you're so shallow. Get me out of this relationship. Because the thing they desire, the joy that they get from it, pollutes the joy. I think you get where I'm going with that. You become like what you crave. When we crave Jesus, we have joy in Jesus. And our joy becomes pure, sacrificial. It becomes kind and compassionate and merciful. And here's the deal. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We see in ways that people in Jesus' time couldn't see. I mean, think about this. This is kind of wonderful. I mean, by way of the Gospels, we get to be part of the inner circle. We get to see Jesus go in and, and heal the, the little girl. Jairus' daughter. We get to watch him, you know, as a small group of onlookers, mourners, watch him raise Lazarus from the dead. I mean, the Syrophoenician woman had one instance with Jesus. Nicodemus, one when Jesus was alive and one when Jesus was dead. But we, through the Gospels, we get to know him in a way. We get to see him, even though we've never seen him. And here's the irony, is that people who saw him on earth every single day didn't really see him. Obviously, the people who killed him didn't see him. Obviously, his disciples who dispersed didn't see him for who he was. We see him in another, in a more important way. The Gospels are better than being there. True Christianity is loving Jesus, trusting Jesus, enjoying Jesus. If you're in the tension that we talked about earlier, 
If you're struggling with anything and would like to have prayer, there'll be some folks during the last worship set back there in the prayer cave. Go and pray. Ask Jesus to reveal himself to you in the middle of your struggle. I remember one couple who had lost their unborn child through a miscarriage were in the depths of agony. Said about their experience, it was like we were sitting on Jesus' lap while pounding on Jesus' chest. We were sitting on his lap while pounding on his chest. And if you're in that situation, please avail yourself of people to pray with you. And let's all close in prayer right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how it reveals Jesus to us. Help us to take joy in Christ, Lord. Help us to trust him every day. And help us to fall in love and stay in love with Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.